Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here midway through the week on this Wednesday, January 10th, 2024. Had phenomenal feedback to my interview yesterday. Well, both interviews actually, both with David, the Menzoid Menzies of Rebel News, but also my interview with uh, Drew McGilvery and Tom Morazzo on the rather dismal state of affairs in the Canadian Armed Forces. You may have seen at uh, True North yesterday, my colleague Cosby. Georgia had a, a rather chilling report about uh, this war on whiteness and patriarchy in the Canadian Armed Forces official journal. The, uh, what is it, the Canadian, I forget the name of it now, it's like the Canadian Military Journal or Canadian Armed Forces Journal or one of those just benign academic names. Uh, Sean said that's it, but I mentioned like four, so I don't know which one. Uh, Canadian Military Journal, there we go. So that was, I, I think, a really important interview. And I, I heard from a number of veterans, including, by the way, my, my father, who I mentioned yesterday on the show, is a, a veteran. And I heard from a number saying that they would not enlist today if they were to you know, be their young selves when they enlisted the first time around, they would not enlist today seeing the military how it is. And that is uh, tremendously shameful. And I mean, it's easy to sort of crack our jokes and say, oh, well, what's the Canadian military doing anyway? But uh, the Canadian military has a role to play. Canada has a role to play. And I think if we move beyond the Trudeau era, as many of you hope we do uh, sooner rather than later, we may find there is a role for Canada to play that is even greater then. And it's really disgraceful that what the military has done in the last several years has started to make the very best people want to self-select out of that process. So uh, we lower the bar so much that uh, we think it's going to make all of the recruitment problems go away. And all it does is mean you balloon it with basically people that don't belong there and the ones that you really want there, the ones that are really going to make the military great are saying, <laughs> I, I don't want anything to do with this. They're kind of doing the old Groucho Marx thing to adapt that line. I think it's actually him. It might be apocryphal, but the, uh, the line as it's often attributed to him is that... Uh, you know, I don't want to be a member of a club that would accept me as a member. Now, that's pretty much my approach to life. Uh, speaking of, by well, speaking of nothing, this has nothing to do with Groucho Marx. It has to do with uh, me. I was nervous that if I were to say for sure it was a Groucho Marx quote, someone would email me and say, well, actually, it's not. Uh, because someone did email me and fact check me the other day. And I meant to bring it up yesterday uh, when I was talking on, I think it was Monday's show about going to Davos. I talked about last year and I said that uh, there was the time in which I was uh, just hanging out in the Davos Congress Center, and there was the Serbian president who I spoke to, and then I went and spoke to the president of Kosovo, and I made a joke about how they were standing at opposite ends of the room, uh, because Balkan humor is absolutely my, uh, my, my bread and butter here. And I, of course, I got the email pointing out that the president of Kosovo was not, in fact, in Davos in 2023, uh, to which I said, Mia culpa, I meant to say the prime minister of Kosovo. It was not the president of Kosovo, it was the prime minister of Kosovo and the president of Serbia. But I am unflinching on the king of the Belgians because he was at the urinal next to me in the bathroom. Not the king of Belgium. They don't call him that. They call him the king of the Belgians for reasons unclear. Uh, nevertheless, we got that out of the way. Uh, we'll put the correction notice uh, down at the bottom, way, 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 way down uh, that I meant to say the prime minister of Kosovo instead of the president of Kosovo. And I, to be honest, I should have known better. I've been to Kosovo. It's a, a lovely 
little country, except for the one thing that greets you when you go into the capital of Pristina, which is this giant statue of Bill Clinton. Uh, and there is not a statue of Monica Lewinsky in front of it, which would have been uh, my, or maybe I can get a Kosovo arts grant to put a Monica Lewinsky statue there. But anyway, uh, Kosovo, uh, Kosovars aside, uh, we are uh, going to talk just for a few moments. I want to update you on the lead story we had yesterday, which was the arrest and subsequent release of David Menzies, who's a, a reporter with Rebel News, uh, arrested while questioning Christia Freeland. Take a look. Ms. Freeland, how come the IRDC is not a terrorist group? Why is your government supporting Islamo nationality? What? You've been mistreated. What are you doing? You're under arrest for assault. You're under arrest for assault. You're under arrest for assault. Police. Police, you're under arrest for so Police, me. you're under arrest. What is your for name in your badge? What is your name second. in your badge? You've been told you're under arrest. Why am I under arrest? He, 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 he blocked my way. What? I was just scrumming Christian uh, Freeland. I'm a, I'm a police officer. You're under arrest. What is your name in your badge? I'm assaulting a police officer. How is that possible? Okay. Now, had he arrested David for a fashion crime for wearing that hat, uh, maybe it would be a bit more justifiable. But no, he was arrested for assaulting a police officer, which, as we did the slow-mo version of the video yesterday, simply did not happen. It's the officer himself who you see outstretch an arm to try to block David's path. They've already managed to do what they wanted to do there, which was put a barrier between a journalist asking questions and Christian Freeland. It was never about a good faith belief on that officer's part that David had committed an assault. It was that we needed to find a pretext to get him away from Christian Freeland, even though there was no risk there. This was the RCMP uh, making up a charge, basically, to run interference for a cabinet minister. Uh, but it's peculiar, peculiar that that cabinet minister has had nothing to say about this. This would be a great opportunity for a magnanimous minister to speak up and say, whoa, 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 this is not how journalists should be treated. Uh, oh, wait, hang on. I, I'm told she actually did put out a statement about journalists being essential to liberal democracy. Oh, okay, I, I stand corrected. Let's watch that. And there is no part of our liberal democratic garden which is more threatened by the jungle's resurgence than the free press. The danger is often specific and physical. Many of you have probably already, in fact, uh, realized uh, that this, uh, have seen the number of uh, journalists that have lost their lives over the last few years. So let's uh, just remember them for a minute and let us also salute their courage uh, because uh, the troubling reality, as was explained in detail during meetings today and yesterday, and that the journalists and workers in the media are more and more targeted and are more and more abused and attacked. And this must stop. We have to work together in order to ensure that journalists can carry out their work in all safety and without any kind of worry for reprisals. 
Wow, that was a bold state. Oh, wait. No, hang on. It uh, looks like that was from 2019. Okay, she had nothing to say in the last uh, 48 hours or so. My, 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 I wonder why that is. Could it be that her uh, bold, big proclamation for press freedom was merely lip service? Well, uh, that clip that I just shared was from the Global Conference for Media Freedom, which took place in London in the United Kingdom in 2019. I had the great privilege of going there. I was accredited by the UK government to be a journalist at the Global Conference for Media Freedom. But uh, you may find it to be a, a little bit weird as to the why she was there. This was this big thing that she wanted to do, this big giant thing that she wanted to do with the UK. And what we found, which was quite fascinating here, is that uh, it was Christian Freeland who blocked Sheila Gunn-Reed from Rebel News and me from attending a press conference she was holding at the Global Conference for Media Freedom. And it was only a, a rare bit of unity from our legacy media colleagues who said, we're not covering your press conference unless you let them all in. Uh, we have not seen that unanimity or any support, in fact, for uh, David Menzies. So, in fact, uh, the only people that are offering any are qualifying it by saying, well... I don't like Rebel, but maybe the police officer went a little bit too far with this. So, uh, Christian Freeland, perhaps not actually a supporter of press freedom. Uh, the reason I wanted to revisit this, Ezra LeVan has announced that they are suing uh, the uh, not just Freeland, but also the RCMP and York Regional Police for this. I, I know they're still working out the details on exactly why, but Ezra joins me now. Uh, Ezra, I mean, th this is something that you've basically had to just contend with, with David Menzies. And I, I know that uh, there are a lot of people, uh, when the Conservatives have spoken up in support of, of David, as they did yesterday, uh, that have said, oh, well, hang on, they were the ones who not that long ago were, were kicking him out and calling the police. Uh, but I don't think that's, you know, an, an accusation of hypocrisy. I think if anything, it's to say that they realize that that is not what politicians should be doing. And, and I was critical when that happened, as I know you were. So uh, that being said, the media is not offering any support right now. Yeah. And I'm not surprised by that. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, I uh, would study legal cases where the media all the different rivals, all the different competitors would each chip in a couple of thousand dollars to hire a lawyer together to fight every free speech freedom of the press case in Canada. So CTV, Global, CBC, Toronto Star, Globe and Mail, they would each chip in a few grand and they would hire an excellent lawyer who would go to court on any free speech matter and say, Your Honor, I'm here on behalf of basically every journalist in the country. Yeah, you see that and with publication bans right now, still to some extent. That's right. So that's the one place you see it. But I have not seen it for general free speech cases in 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. So what happened to David Menzies yesterday, and we've all seen the video, 14 million people have seen the video in about 36 hours, by the way. We see that David had clean hands. He didn't push anyone, he didn't threaten anyone, he didn't swear at anyone, he didn't assault anyone. And we all saw the worst, that was astonishing that he was arrested, but we all saw how the cop uh, pushed him, sticking out his arm, getting in his way and saying, you're under arrest. He's a plainclothes cop who didn't identify himself, by the way. Uh, and so we all saw how the police immediately lied about it and tried to gaslight David saying, oh, you were 
aggressive. You were pushing people around. Pack of lies. I, I get the feeling that these bodyguards for uh, Trudeau and Freeland do this all the time. This is just the first time it was caught on tape. So normally, um, I mean, if this were a CBC reporter that Doug Ford did this to, or Danielle Smith did this to, or back in the day, Stephen Harper did this to, you might well see that consortium of media companies hiring a lawyer together, and you would see a national condemnation of this. But no, it's David Menzies of Rebel News. And actually, by the way, he's the only person in our company with a journalism degree, um, and I mean, I, so we're all citizen journalists here, but he's actually the most credentialed of us. And he was doing real journalism. And it's astonishing to me to watch the CBC denigrate him. They won't, the CBC won't even call him a journalist. They won't even call him a reporter. Their website calls him a media personality. I'm not too sad about that because the CBC won't call Hamas terrorists and the CBC doesn't know the answer to what is a woman. So well, and their people I, also lack personality, so it might actually be a compliment. Yeah, but anyway, my point is, I, I, yesterday I checked the Twitter feeds of all the so-called free speech groups, Canadian Association of Journalists, Canadian Journalists for Free Expression, uh, Amnesty International, PEN Canada, uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Canadian, uh, sorry, the, the Council for the Protection of Journalists, Six, about six different groups, not one of them had anything to say. And I think it's because Trudeau has successfully colonized uh, the media. And most of those groups I just referred to are, are too busy applying for grants from Trudeau and Freeland to upset them. Anyways, uh, we're going to take things into, I, that's a very long way of saying we can't rely on anyone to help us. No one's coming to help us. So we have to help ourselves. So I have spoken to Sarah Miller, who I know has been a guest on your show before. Mm -hmm. That's the excellent young lawyer who managed to get Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky his successful appeal at the Court of Appeal in Alberta. She's agreed to take on this case. Now, we're still formalizing the lawsuit, but I would imagine it would en encompass false arrest, false imprisonment, malicious prosecution, negligent investigation, assault, and, and charter violations violating David's freedom of the press. And by the way, I'm not the only person who's worried about this. I see the RCMP has claimed that they are reviewing the incident. Now mm -hmm. the CBC will, I can tell you in advance, they're going to whitewash it. But I'm not going to let them go so easily. They abused, lied, arrested, detained, assaulted David Menzies and said, whoopsie, my bad, you can go now. All right, we can go now, but they can't go now. Now we're going to take this before court. And one of the things I'm going to ask Sarah as we prepare the lawsuit is, do we want a jury trial? I don't know the answer to that right now, but I want the world. Listen, 14 million people saw that video and were disgusted by it. I want a judge to see that, maybe a jury to see that. And I want David Menzies to get a win. And I want to set a precedent and I want to send a warning because this is not the first time Trudeau's thugs have beat up David. And it's not the first time Christian Freeland's thugs have assaulted our people too. One of her staffers assaulted our videographer, Lincoln J. So if we don't stand up to these bullies, it's going to keep happening. And sometimes people say, Ezra, you're too litigious. My first answer to that is they violated our rights. It's my right to go to court. Second of all, sometimes we win. Like when we fought to get access to the election debates, mm -hmm. and I know you were part of that fight in 2019. 
And sometimes you just need a small precedent for a win. When Stephen Gilbo blocked us on Twitter, oh, that's a trivial matter. Well, no, not really, because it's a government department blocking us from getting government information. We sued in federal court and we won. These are all little wins, and I wish more people were doing it. I give, I tip my hat to the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and the Canadian Constitution Foundation, but we need more civil liberties litigation. No, absolutely. And, and one of the big things that we see in this, and I, I mentioned our, our little mini solidarity that we saw at the Global Conference for Media Freedom a couple of years ago. But, you know, that event was very interesting because you were there as well for a part of it. But uh, I don't know how far away was it? Maybe uh, 20 kilometers away from that conference. Uh, Tommy Robinson was appearing in court at the Old Bailey. And I, I can't remember which appearance it was at that point, but I believe it was a decision about uh, whether he was going to jail or a decision about whether he was yeah. uh, at risk of going to jail, whatever it was at the day. And, and I recall talking to uh, one of the journalism advocates at this group. I think she was with uh, Reporters Without Borders. And, uh, you know, she said, oh, yes, press freedom. Journalists are being targeted. And you mentioned Tommy Robinson. And just instantly the color drains from the yeah. face. Well, he's not a journalist. And, and they had the same yeah. approach to Julian Assange. They had this, and, and look, I, yeah. I'm all for debating uh, the tactics, the ethics, the merits of a Tommy Robinson, a David Menzies, a you, a me, a Julian Assange, mm -hmm. a Rosie Barton, a mm -hmm. David Carr. Let, let's let's debate and let's challenge and let's criticize and be skeptical. But mm -hmm. where you draw that line on what a journalist is, is crucially important because uh, the government's trying to make it where audiences aren't the ones that make that determination, right, where right. Uh, police do. And I, and I want to just play a clip, if I if I may, Ezra here, because at the, the Global Conference for Media Freedom ended up becoming a big dud. It, like Christian mm -hmm. Freeland and Jeremy Hunt in the UK had such big hopes. And then the next year it ended up being like this virtual conference that Botswana was hosting and then it just yeah. disappeared. But yeah. I asked at that next one, Francois-Philippe Champagne, who was the Canadian delegate, what a journalist is and if it's government and what, what definition government uses. And this right. is the answer right. he gave. Okay. Well, that's a very good question. And thank you for it. I don't think it is for any government to define who is a journalist, actually. Uh, I, I would leave it to journalists to define that themselves. I, I think our role is to make sure that, as we said today, we have seen a number, there's a number of trends uh, against media freedom around the world. We heard from our colleagues in Belarus today who have been harassed, who have been facing violence, and, and have been seeing more and more restrictions uh, on media freedom. One other aspect which is of concern to me, and I mentioned that before, it's the kind of emerging technologies uh, which uh, uh, are, are spreading misinformation and disinformation. So I would think that uh, we need more than ever uh, journalists uh, uh, around the world to speak up, to stand up, and to report uh, information accurately so that citizens around the world can be properly informed, and that's the bedrock of our democracy. And you notice the pivot to Belarus. Christian Freeland loves to do this. You talk about it, well, let's talk about journalists in Congo. Let's talk about journalists in Iran. Let's talk mm -hmm. about journalists yeah. in Belarus. Yeah. So I say, let's talk about journalists in Richmond Hill. So yeah. uh, right there, you have Minister Champagne saying, no, 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 it's not government that decides, but his government is the one that has uh, effect effectively a podcast registry uh, that has state-subsidized media, a government that has all of these designations of qualified Canadian journalism organizations where they decide you can be a journalist and you can't be. And, and now you look at the liberal response to what happened to David and it's all, well, he's, he's not a real journalist, as though that excuses the conduct first and foremost. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why I want to get this in the court. I, I mean, I, I spoke to a very senior lawyer this morning um, 
very senior criminal lawyer, famous name. And he said that he, he watched the tape very carefully. He said, absolutely, they violated his rights. Absolutely, there's significant damages here. Um, so all these know-nothings that the CBC and elsewhere poo-pooing what happened to David, um, I know a court will find it differently. And, and by the way, uh, you got to keep hope alive because we have had victories in the courts, which tells me there are still some people in Canada who believe in freedom for reporters. By the way, you didn't include in your list of censorship there that uh, the CRTT, CT, excuse me, CRTC is now requiring news companies like yours and mine to come up with codes of conduct mm -hmm. that the government will approve or not. Could you imagine the chutzpah in this? The government will hold journalists to account rather than journalists being allowed to hold the government to account. I saw a CBC panel yesterday that said that David Menzies was harassing Christia Freeland by asking her questions by virtue of him being male. And there was a gender aspect. And so the arrest may have been reasonable because he was a man and she was a woman. That's, that's the new ideological woke thinking at the CBC. Uh, they would never say that, by the way, if the woman in question were Danielle Smith, or another conservative like that. Um, Andrew, it falls to people like you and us and David Menzies to keep real journalism alive that doesn't make excuses and say, oh, that's harassing and doesn't excuse uh, police brutality because the regime media, the media party, they no longer believe in speaking truth to power. They no longer believe in scrumming powerful people. Uh, if it's people on the left who are being scrummed. So I'm looking forward to going to court. And as soon as our lawsuit is finalized, we'll publish it. And I'm happy to share it with you and happy to talk to you about it or, or invite our lawyer, Sarah Miller, to go on your show to answer technical questions. Um, it's an expensive thing to mm -hmm. sue because we get no government money. We're like you in that regard. So we do crowdfund it. And sometimes people say, oh, Ezra, you're always crowdfunding. Yeah. Because I feel like I'm fighting the whole world at the same time. We have seven different lawsuits against Justin Trudeau right now, and this will be number eight. If people want to help out, they can go to standwithdavid.com. I don't know how much it's going to cost to sue the government. I don't think there's any chance it'll be less than 100 grand. And I can tell you right now, the government is going to have five or 10 lawyers on the other side. They always do. I can tell you right now, they're going to spend a million dollars of public money fighting against us. But I, I'm pretty sure we're going to win, and damn it, we have to try. All right, Ezra Levant, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, my friend. Bye-bye. All right, thank you. And I just want to show, I mean, there's the legal aspect of this, which I think is incredibly important, but I also want to focus on the political response because the conservatives saw an opportunity here. And again, the conservatives have not always been great on this issue. They've uh, had a, a very, I mean, in the past, they've banned Rebel from their events. It seems like that uh, embargo or that ban has ended and the, the conservatives are fine. And I, I someone I saw a screenshot. I don't I haven't verified it, but that the conservatives might even be advertising on Rebel News. I, I don't know if that's the case. And it doesn't matter. I mean, uh, a party should be uh, targeting where it thinks voters are. I mean, we are at True North. We don't take ads. So uh, for us, it's not really a, an issue. But I know the conservatives have advertised with Key and Bexie's counter signal. I believe the, the Western standard as well, if I recall. Uh, but ultimately, what we're seeing here is a a real change in that party. So uh, when in the past they uh, had uh, an incident with Melissa Lansman, who's a conservative member of parliament, who's been on this show, I, I don't think she is a, a particular fan of David Menzies. And uh, th that case, though, there there was one big difference because I, while I was critical and condemned that, and I, I don't regret doing so, I've had a number of people say, oh, well, why didn't you criticize the conservatives? Well, I, I did. 
There is a difference, though, in, in one way, which is that political parties do not have a legal obligation to accommodate journalists. We, I think they have a moral duty and a political duty, but legally a political party is a private entity. When it has an event, uh, they have the legal right to have police remove people from that event in the same way that if I hold an event and you're there and I don't want you there, I can have police remove you because at that point you're trespassing on private property. Now, that's what's happened to me. The liberals have done that. It's what's happened to me. It's what happened to, to Menzies with uh, conservative events. It's what's happened to Karima Saad, who's a, an independent journalist and lawyer as well. And in that case, there, there isn't a legal ground on which you can go after these parties. You have to just criticize them and condemn them and shame them, which I think you should. I mean, the liberals had police in Thunder Bay remove me from an event during the 2019 election. Uh, they eventually apologized, uh, but didn't really release their ban on, on me covering their events as a journalist. So uh, in, in this case, we're talking about a police officer who either unilaterally or with direction from the cabinet on a public space, this was not a trespassing issue, uh, decided to arrest this journalist, accuse him of assaulting a police officer. Then, as David said yesterday, just like drop him off on the outskirts of town uh, with, I don't know, they gave him like a bag on a stick or something and just, you know, like the you know hobo had to march around. But uh, what we see happening here is the normalization of this decision by the liberals. And uh, when the liberals banned me from covering their caucus retreat, which was in my own city, there was nary a peep from a lot of legacy media outlets, which I think was absolutely disgraceful. Not because you know my, my fragile little ego wanted the support, but because we need to take the uh, principled stand on these issues and you need to apply it to everyone. So uh, that is, I think, my little TED talk on this. Although I will show you a video of the, the liberals just did not choose their timing all that well. So they're being dragged even by people that are generally fans of them for having this reporter arrested or the perception that they had this reporter arrested. This was the tweet they issued and the video they put out yesterday. No, not you, not you. Can you give us a chance? Your organization You are attacking our news organization. Your organization Can you give us a chance Let's to ask a question? We have uh, basically a, a liberal heckler who snuck in here today. These newspapers and the media are totally dishonest people, folks. Remember that. Contrary to the false and dishonest reporting of the liberal media. Yeah, I think the media is the opposition party in many ways. I think uh, CP should stop acting as the communications arm of the PMO. You know, when, when I look at the media, how one-sided it is, how biased it is. Well, first of all, you, you your question was typical of CBC, biased again. <laughs> So they're, they're doing the, oh, he uh, he's mean to the media on the same day, or I guess the day after they literally had a reporter arrested for questioning their deputy leader. I, all I'm thinking is like, dudes, just sit this one. Like you're, you're losing this one. Absolutely just sit this one out because this is not reflecting well for you. And of course, I, I should actually check the numbers. This might be a good nominee for uh, ratio of the week for my uh, colleague Harrison Faulkner. Uh, let's just, while we're on this topic to wind it down, let's show one more clip of Christian Freeland pontificating about the virtue of media freedom. Journalists are not the enemies of the people. Journalists serve the people. Speaking from my own experience in government, I cannot say that every single question that I am asked by a journalist is welcome or easy to answer. But I am absolutely convinced that the fact that journalists are present 
to bear witness the fact that journalists are present to hold governments to account makes governments better. So freedom of the press is an essential human right, and it is an essential element in making democracy strong. Essential. The questions are sometimes unpleasant. You don't always like them. Uh, then, okay, arrest that man! All right. Well, glad we're consistent, at least. Uh, we are going to move on from this for now, but I suspect this story will have a few more developments in the days and weeks to come. Uh, we've spent a fair bit of time on the show in recent weeks talking about immigration. Now, this was something that came up when I sat down with conservative leader Pierre Polyev for a year-end interview, uh, which was, well, I guess, as the name would suggest, near the end of the year last year. And I was asking about immigration, and I said, listen, we have a housing crisis. You've talked about this here are the immigration numbers, are those inflaming the housing crisis? And he basically said, well, yeah, you have to do the numbers. There are only so many houses being built. There are this many people coming into the country, but he would not commit to what his number would be. Although he said that when he forms government, if he forms government, his immigration target, which for the liberals is 500,000 a year, but is uh, truthfully higher than that when you take into account uh, foreign students, temporary foreign workers, and so on, that the number would be tied to economic metrics. It would be tied to housing, it would be tied to labor force availability, and so on. Now, I think there is a, a bit of an issue when we only look at immigration on the narrow economic grounds. While these are important, it is not the totality of the immigration issue. There are issues to do with culture and integration. These were very controversially discussed in the 2015 election, but as a result, it's become this uh, big no-go topic that no one is allowed to bring up. Well, if there are issues here, and we're gonna take a, an honest, uh, high-level view of immigration, can we have a grown-up conversation? Aaron Woodrick, who is the Domestic Policy Program Director for the McDonald laurier Institute, had a fantastic piece over at The Hub about this. Let's see if we can kick off this uh, grown-up conversation. Aaron, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Always a pleasure, Andrew. So uh, let me just first ask you why this gets so narrowly pigeonholed into being a, an economic issue when obviously immigration is, is going to be more complex than that. I think it's because it's safe turf for people, right? If we're talking about economics, if we're talking about the obvious thing, which is that we have a housing problem and immigration as arithmetic, um, that I, I think is safe turf. I think it starts to get a little more uncomfortable for people when they're starting to imply that they're uncomfortable with large numbers of people um, who are not like them coming here. And look, I understand why this is a minefield. Some people can interpret this as just being hostile to people who aren't like you or racist. I mean, there are people who are like that. But a lot of it also is just human nature, right? Like we are more comfortable around people um, like us who speak our language, who practice our religion, who have the same cultural tastes as we do. Um, that's just human nature all around the world. And so I think it, it is fair to have a conversation, especially in a country like Canada, which is, as I make the argument in the piece, largely been built by immigration and fairly successfully at that. Um, you know, what is the what is the rate of immigration that we're all comfortable with? That's optimal for Canada that gives Canadians who are already here the most benefits, the newcomers the most benefits, and that you know, ensures that we can all continue to get along. Um, you know, this is a problem that a lot of countries are struggling with, and Canada is no exception. But we need to have this conversation out in the open because pretending that it doesn't matter and pretending that um, it is it's not creating any tension uh, does not do us any favors. 
I think there there have been waves of this discussion, and I wouldn't say they've always been constructive or, or productive. I think post 9-11, certainly a lot of people were talking about uh, the integration aspect of immigration. I think we're seeing a, another wave now. And in, in Canada, you, you see this on a number of fronts. I mean, you, you have uh, ethnic tensions on the Khalistan Sikh uh, separatism issue, especially out in some parts of British Columbia. You've got uh, now the wave of anti-Semitism. And, and again, I, I'm not going to broadly, uh, in, in broad strokes here, malign any individual group, but you have a lot of people that are, are immigrants from Arab or Muslim countries that have views on Israel that don't align with, I think, where a lot of Canadians are. And we see this in, in some of these protests. You have uh, then on the other side, the gender uh, the gender ideology uh, fights that were taking place in the fall, where you had some of those same people, Muslims saying, well, hang on, my values don't align with, with these things. So there, no one can say there isn't a conversation there. But as we mm -hmm. see, the longer you don't talk about it, the more hot it gets. Yeah, you know, and, and that and that's a problem. You know, we, we have to recognize that, uh, uh, you know, when we talk, for example, about integration, right, about the idea that when you come to a country, you're kind of joining a national project, right? And nobody expects you to, you know, you move to Canada and the next day, suddenly you're, you're, you're pouring maple syrup on your on your cereal and you got the toque on. I mean, but but what they do expect is that over time, you know, you kind of, uh, if not assimilate, which is a dirty word in a lot of quarters, integrate, sort of at least merge your past with our future together. I think most people think that's a reasonable compromise. And there's all kinds of things that impact how that happens. It's how many how many people from your home country are here when you get here. Are you able to live in Canada, essentially amongst a community from your home country entirely? What, is, what does that impact does that have on your integration? Um, you know, government, uh, whether the government is signaling to you that they, there's an expectation that you're supposed to start to adopt or integrate Canadian ways, you know, respect Canadian laws, Canadian values, um, or whether it's sort of, you you know what you come here and you can just do your own thing and you don't need to pay any attention to the national project so there's a bunch of different factors at play here but i i think most canadians i you know look i i again i think there are some um who are just genuinely if someone has a different skin color they don't like them i don't think that's most canadians though i think most canadians it's what's more important to them is that people come here and they want to be canadian they want to feel canadian they want to live together with other canadians rather than side by side and i think though that's the, i think that is the sort of general consensus that's really there we just just have to figure out, you know, what's the right level of immigration that allows us to get there. Yeah, and I, I would also say, even if someone views immigration purely as an economic calculation, if there's enough space and there are enough jobs and enough resources, I don't really care about anything else. Let's just accept that premise for a moment. Uh, there is a threshold that will exist for Canadians as how many is too many. And it's not to say that they're right or wrong, but it's that people are going to have their own threshold. And, and once you push above that, whatever it is, you start to have Canadians turn on immigration and, and turn on immigrants themselves, which I, I don't think anyone wants. And I, I, I mean, it's an unpleasant conversation because we can say, well, yep. Canadians shouldn't have an issue with it if there's enough space and there are enough jobs. Sure. But if they do, any government that overextends that is naturally going to, as you talk about in, the, in your piece, erode that consensus around it. Yeah, and I think it's a sliding scale. And I think what's important is that, you know, it's okay for some people to be uncomfortable with people that aren't like them. That doesn't necessarily make them racist. And I really, really like to reserve that term for people who sort of are very explicit in saying they think lesser of people who, you know, have a different skin color, things like that. Being, you know, just being more comfortable with people who speak your language or practice your religion or things like that, that's normal. I, I don't I don't begrudge uh, people that. And I think, um, you know, I think we need to allow for that roommate. To me, I 
kind of, the analogy to me, Andrew, is kind of like some people, um, they like to try different kinds of food all the time. That's just their personality. They find it interesting. They, they, they like the adventure. Other people know what they like to eat. Right. And they want to stick with what they know. And it's just that it, maybe it's a handful of things. And there's nothing wrong with either of those. Those are just different personality types. And I think we need to be careful with Canadians when they express that preference um, that we're not really make. And I think that's the reason we don't have this conversation a lot of the time is people are afraid that if they even say something remotely, like, you know what, I. I, you know, I, in my own town, sometimes I feel like there's no one like me, even though I was I'm, I'm a, I was born in Canada. Uh, you know, people are wary of being called racist for saying that. And I, I, I don't think that's fair to, to treat people that way. Well, and even on the economic side alone, you you have, you know, basically what, what's an inherent contradiction here. You have, you know, some jobs that just, you know, we don't have enough people to fill in Canada. So we say, okay, well, we need to bring in all of these immigrants to fill those jobs. And then, oh, well, we don't have enough houses to uh, house the immigrants. Uh, so we need to build more houses. Oh, we need to build more houses. Okay, let's bring in more immigrants to build houses. Like, and it, it's this cycle that no one has really found an answer to yet. Yeah. And, you know, this is a problem that exists in a lot of countries where you kind of have this almost imported labor for underclass. You know, I've lived in different places, uh, you know, places like the Middle East uh, in, in Dubai, where you have a, basically a whole imported uh, class of slave labor. I could call it short of nothing short of slave labor, indentured labor almost. Um, and in a lot of other countries, it's the same thing. Canada, we've had a bit of that. We're, we're seeing a lot more of it now. I think that's why it's attracting more attention. And a lot of cases, you know, employers will say, well, we can't we can't find Canadians to do the work um in some cases they could they could by raising uh, raising wages that of course would lead to higher prices and i think canadians might uh, might not love that part um but part of it also is we don't talk about our entitlement system right especially with seasonal workers in atlantic canada some employers for example have had a hard time trying to find people uh to work that's why they import uh, uh, foreign labor but that would you know if we if we reformed our entitlement system in canada things like ei you know you would remove that disincentive to work so part of this is systemic too and i think a lot of governments governments are just taking a shortcut. The easy thing to do is just say, oh yeah, we'll just kind of let people in through this channel and that solves the problem and it goes away. But as we can see now, it creates a whole different set of problems uh, when it comes to discussing immigration. Just on a, on another note here, uh, one of these issues that it's kind of like supply management in that you have like nine people in Canada that really care about it from a policy perspective, but those nine people really care about it, which is telecom regulation. And I would say more people <laughs> should care about it because, you know, it, it affects everyone, you know, price of dairy, price of your phone plan. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm a Rogers customer. I am on a contract right now. So I think I'm a little bit safe, but anyone who's not on a contract is going to find uh, an increase, which I know will affect me when it comes up for renewal. Uh, um, here we have an issue in, in which the conservatives previously tried to do a little bit with it. They tried to basically yeah. allow Verizon. In, and you'd think it was, though, like we were being invaded by Germany. It was just like, how dare we let a foreign telecom company in? The liberals say the right things. They say, well, yeah, you know, competition we need. But they aren't doing anything, as you pointed out, to allow competition. What's going on here? Yeah, look, and it's not just telecoms or supply management, it's banks, it's airlines. There's a raft of sectors in this country where uh, the reason there's no was we don't allow it. We have rules around foreign investment and foreign ownership, and that is the reason for the lack of competition. So I say to people, you have to pick a lane. You can have on one side, if you absolutely insist that all these companies be headquartered in Canada, be owned by Canadians, by controlled by Canadians, you're not going to have enough competition. You're going to pay high prices for things like telecoms. Uh, the other alternative is you let in foreign competitors. Uh, you'll see more competition. You'll see price wars. You'll probably get better customer service to boot. The trade-off will be some of our companies will not survive. Some of our corporate giants, our titans, um, they are coddled. They are protected. They don't want competition, Andrew. They're afraid of it. Um, and I, you know, I may 
received this remark elsewhere. When it comes to trade and business, anytime there's talk of a new trade deal or loosening restrictions, you see Canadian business divides into two camps. One camp is excited. They're ambitious. They say, you know what? I can go out there. I can take over the world. You know, I can dominate. And then you have the other half, which are terrified. They do not want competition. They're afraid of global competition. Why? I want to know why our governments always side with the terrified group and never double down on the ambitious entrepreneurial group that see, you know, competition as an opportunity and a challenge, not as an existential threat. Yeah. And I think the, the re, I mean, I remember I, I, you, you and I first met, I don't even know if you remember this, but it was a, a Fraser Institute student seminar, uh, however many years ago, back oh, when they used to, you know, do those <laughs> and they bring in a bunch of, you know, rambunctious young uh, students to talk about policy. I don't know if they still do them, but they were great fun. And, and you know, at the time I, I was a bit of a rabble rouser. And I remember at university, I, I sat in through this one, um, uh, session that you all had to do if you were part of a club on campus. And the head of the club's program, as always, who's like a raging lefty, uh, gave this big long lecture about how we're not allowed to sell food as clubs because there are vendors on campus that sell food. And she used the line, and everyone knows competition makes prices go up. And I was like... <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I could agree on that, but, but everyone, like, it's the opposite. I mean, even like raging Marxists, I think, concede that competition will, except for this one, will, will lower prices. They may say it's not good to do so, but sure. no one can argue that competition wouldn't be better for consumers here. No, but the, pro the problem uh, that the government has from a stakeholder standpoint is it's not good for the incumbents, right? It's not good for Rogers and Bell, and Rogers and I mean, uh, this we see this over and over in other sectors. What they do is they start they start trying to spook the public with job losses, right? They say, oh, well, if we get a competitor in here, we're going to have to lay off all these people. And then governments don't want the bad headlines, so they back off. And of course, they never want to tell you the other half of that is that, you know, someone else is going to be doing that job. I mean, when, you know, when Walmart moved into Canada, um, that wasn't good for certain Canadian uh, retailers that were the competitors, but a lot of people work at Walmart in Canada now. So they created jobs on the other side of the ledger. So, uh, you know, I think it's disingenuous. It's, it's self serving. Um, obviously, any business that's doing well wants to keep doing well, and they're going to pull all the levers they can, including trying to pressure governments into not allowing more competitors. I think as consumers, as voters, we need to be very, very aware about that. Um, they're not looking out for our interests. They're looking out for their own self-interest. Um, and really, if we're really interested in competition and lower prices, uh, it shouldn't matter you know, which company is delivering that. What should matter is that consumers are getting lower prices and better service. Yeah, and a telecom is probably a great example because you, everyone's had a terrible customer service experience with every one of the companies and everyone's had at a certain point a call drop on, on every one of them. But, but they all claim to have like the fastest network, the largest network. So they're all the same. It's purely a matter yeah. of which one has your business at a particular point in time. Uh, and I think, you know, anything that would change that, I would be all for. So an opportunity for, uh, for the conservatives, possibly. Uh, Aaron Woodrick, thank you so much as always, sir. Thanks a lot, Andrew. All right. And you can read his phenomenal piece on immigration over at The Hub. I would encourage you to do so. And hopefully we started off that grown-up conversation on immigration right here on The Andrew Lawton Show. So I don't want to be presumptuous. He may have had like a conversation before this one, but uh, I'm claiming it because I didn't know about it. All right. That does it for us for today. We will be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Same time, same place. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.